Oh, come, all you people, come and praise the Most High. Sing praises to the Lord our God. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers but their delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law they meditate day and night
wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Eternal and present God, in the midst of the busy voices of our world, we long to hear your voice. Where we have often been led astray by the loudest and most power-hungry among us, you, O oh God, call us back. Back to that which nourishes us. That to what grounds us and sustains us. Back to the truth of our ancestors and the dreams of your prophets. Today and always, may we be open to your spirit, whose truth leads us to your promised peace. We pray in the name of the triune God. Grace to you and peace, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord, and because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, that means that our word of welcome is one that is extended unequivocally because we extend it on behalf of Jesus Christ. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, if you will kindly sign the friendship pad, including those of you worshiping online, there is a virtual friendship pad for you, if you will sign the physical friendship pad here in this sanctuary, you may send it down and back again that we might greet one another by name following worship. And likewise, we'd be delighted if everyone would join us in, a t in Old Buttonwood Hall for a time of fellowship. The hall is just out this door to my right, down a very short ramp, and there you will find that our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, and most importantly, we will have the opportunity to engage with one another in our common life together. Speaking of our common life together, I'd like to highlight a few things upcoming that are of particular importance for us. The first is to call your attention to the insert in your bulletin for the Man a Pie Sale. Uh, I believe everything you need to order a pie is on that sheet, but in the event that that seems to be a little bit challenging, just go to our church website and click on the, the uh, slide for it, and it will take you straight to a page where you can register to buy a pie to benefit Mana, a ministry that our congregation was deeply involved with, is deeply involved in, that we founded here at First Church and that serves a vital need in our community. I'd like to highlight a few other things in the bulletin for your particular attention. The first is to say that our TNTs are going to brunch today, so find Laura after the service or meet in Old Buttonwood Hall and enjoy your brunch together. If you're not doing that, however, the search committee for our new organist choir master would very much like for you to come up to the McCall room. So go get your cookie and your coffee and talk for a few minutes, and then go up to the McCall room for a listening session with members of our search committee as we seek to discern exactly what the qualities are that we need in our next organist choir master here at First Church. Next Sunday is a special Sunday in the life of this congregation in that we are celebrating our 325th anniversary. There will be special music for the day. Uh, many of our former clergy will be returning to worship with us. There is a champagne reception following worship in Old Buttonwood Hall. It should be a wonderful day. It will also be our regular All Saints Sunday observance. And we want to be sure that we include the names of your loved ones that have died in the last year in uh, the great prayers of thanksgiving as we give thanks to God for their lives. So if you have lost someone dear to you, they don't have to be a member of this congregation, uh, just make sure that we have that name in the church office by Thursday. If you think that Laura or I may be challenged in its pronunciation, phonetic pronunciations are always welcomed. Uh, we are having a membership class on December 10th. Either Laura or I can tell you more about that. Just reach out to us whether you've been with us a long time or a short time if you feel that God is calling you to unite with us here in ministry at First Church. I believe that means I have read you the entire announcement section, so I will leave everything else to your attention later on. Let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. Even though we have witnessed how God has shown up for our church and our community in the past, 
And even though we have experienced our prayers answered before, we can nonetheless struggle to believe that God will show up for us this time. As we strive again to trust that God is in our lives, we come to this time of confession daring to take a small, simple step of faith back towards the divine. So come, let us confess our sins and rekindle our trust in God once more. Let us pray. Holy God, you have invited us to write your laws on our hearts and to find our meaning in you. You give us the gift of community to sustain our faith and call us to a way of life set aside for a holy purpose. Even still, though disappointments shake our faith, we forget your faithfulness to us, and then we turn aside from the hope you offer us. Forgive us, we pray. Renew within us the commitment to be your people, to show your way, to live as vessels of your grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. good news of this day is that God sees our long winding story as a community of faith. God holds our fears as we move into this next season of our lives. God sees us, God has compassion on us, God forgives us, and strengthens us for the road ahead. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Listen for God's word for you. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in God to declare to, declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak, not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. Our second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. Listen again for God's word for you. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment is the, in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the entire law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him answer, for from that day on, any, no one dared to speak and ask him questions anymore. May God offer a blessing to these readings. Our final reading of scripture today comes to us from the book of Deuteronomy, the 34th chapter. We read there the first 12 verses. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Don, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired, and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. 
Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. And the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all of his servants and his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it is Reformation Sunday, so I can't think of a better time to talk about John Knox. We don't know much about his early life. His father was a farmer in Scotland. His mother died when he was a little boy. We don't even know his actual birthday. It is sometime between 1505 and 1550. His father wanted more for him than farming, so Knox studied at the University of St. Andrews, where he became a priest and a notary. It was sometime around then that he started to become convinced of the rightness of the Protestant Reformation. And since we're just covering the highlights, I'll come straight to the point. He got caught up in the events that led to the murder of Cardinal David Beaton. And when the French Queen Regent of Scotland brought in all of her friends to help clean up the mess, Knox was taken prisoner by the French. He spent two years in galley enslavement, rowing in the depths of a boat. When he was finally released, he escaped to England. In England, he was charged to the parish of Berwick-upon-Tweed, where he ministered until Mary Tudor became Queen of England and the Protestants were once more kicked out. So he was again exiled, this time to Geneva, where he encountered John Calvin, from whom he learned further principles of Reformed theology. After a time, he returned to Scotland. Then he was exiled back to Geneva. Then he returned to Scotland. You should see a trend emerging here. On his last return to Scotland, he was delayed a bit because he couldn't get a visa to pass through England. You see, he'd written this troublesome little pamphlet entitled, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, and Queen Elizabeth I was not amused. He served his last call at St. Giles in Edinburgh, and he died one day after preaching the induction of his successor to that pulpit. Now, at the time of his death, the throne of Scotland 
was still occupied by Mary Stewart, a woman with whom he disagreed vehemently. The future of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland was by no means yet clear. It really could not be said that his life's work had been achieved. There is no monument to him other than a stone in the pavement under parking space number 23 behind the church where it, it notes that he lies buried somewhere in that parking lot, though in fairness it was a great honor to be buried in the churchyard and not outside the town limits. John Knox was a man who knew what it was to be disappointed. He was a man who knew what it was to struggle toward an end that he might never see realized. Now, I love the sense of satisfaction that comes from a work completed. Perhaps you do too. There is something deeply gratifying about finishing meaningful work. The bigger the task, the more lofty the goal, the more fulfilling it is to knock it off the list. So it is, I find, there are few verses of Scripture more poignant than those when Moses is carried by God up to Mount Nebo and shown the promised land because he will not be permitted to enter it. God was clear early on that Moses would not be allowed into the promised land. There are numerous occasions on which a reason is given. Frankly, the ultimate reason is something of a moving target. And it seems there's something unfair about it, unkind almost. So much so that the late Patrick Miller equates the denial of Moses' desire to go into the promised land to the level of disappointment that permeates the book of Job. Miller writes, whether or not Moses is viewed as a tragic figure, certainly the tradition seems to see in his death the unfulfillment of the highest order, in that a life is cut short of the goal toward which it has always been directed. Such failure is often what seems to make death a tragic part of human existence. There's something deeply sad about the story of Moses. He didn't want the job in the first place. God coerced him at the burning bush way back in Exodus. God made him lead God's frequently fickle people. You may recall recently where we read that God utterly and completely despaired of the Israelites in an almost comical interlude. God refers to the Israelites as Moses' people, to which Moses rather tartly reminds God that they are in fact God's people. And it was Moses who had to listen to the complaints of the Israelites in the wilderness. First that they would starve, then that they would die of thirst, then that they didn't have meat, then that their diet was too bland. It was Moses to whom they returned repeatedly for sympathy. God seems to be rather hard-hearted toward their plight at times. While meeting their needs, God rarely expresses sympathy. God ultimately tells Moses that if they don't shut up about it, God is going to send so much meat to them that they are going to have quails coming out of their noses. That is a direct quote from the Almighty. Despite their closeness to him, despite all of that, when Moses begs God to be allowed to go into the promised land, the answer remains no. Things will go a different way. Moses will not go into the promised land. 
it seems resoundingly unfair. It feels so disappointing. So I suspect it's not too much of an overreach to the say that the story of Moses is a story for anyone who has ever experienced disappointment. If you have ever worked arduously and long toward an outcome that you will not see realized, this story has a word for you. It seems almost cruel sometimes to call attention to the fact that we will all face disappointment in our lives. Happy commitment season. Your mailings will be coming soon. But the truth, we are reminded, does not change based upon our ability to stomach it. And things don't always work out the way we want them to. Sometimes we work diligently and hard and still, despite our best efforts, things just don't work out. I don't mean the disappointment of a relief pitcher that can't close a game or the failure of a Schwarbaum or Bohm run to materialize in the seventh game. No, I am referring to real disappointment, deep disappointment that shakes us at a much more core level of our existence. Those disappointments run a bit deeper. I don't have to rattle off a list. You can do it yourselves. You know exactly what it would include. Things like divorce, downsizing, death, disease. Any one of these can immediately lead us to that place of deeper disappointment. To which I, of which I am speaking. I almost feel bad for bringing it up, except that it is fairly well a universal part of life that we all experience disappointment. We don't enter the promised land. I imagine promised land might look a little different for each of us. We are, after all, individuals with varying hopes and dreams. What might seem like a silly disappointment to me could seem monumental to you, or what seems insignificant to you might be insurmountable to another. What peeves you may pain me, because we are endlessly complex creatures. And yet the common experience of living is into each of our lives a little rain will fall, or a lot, or a devastating flood. Interestingly, the author of Deuteronomy never really tells us how Moses felt about the promised land. God takes Moses up to Mount Nebo and shows him that the promise will be fulfilled, and then Moses dies. It's really not the most hopeful passage of Scripture. I can almost feel bad about preaching on it on a beautiful autumnal Sunday when there is so much to be excited about in our common life, so many celebrations that we share together. Almost. But there is a twist, if we will see it, in this story that turns it around. No, Moses will not go into the promised land. But God does carry Moses to the top of the mountain to see how the promise will be fulfilled. It's not that God didn't care how Moses felt. It is that God has determined a different course of action. Within the relationship between God and Moses, there is a deep and abiding care implied on the part of God toward Moses. Moses is not just some tool that God decided to use, but
but rather a mortal with whom God enjoyed a loving and personal relationship face to face, as the scriptures tell us. So when Moses comes to the end, God does not just step back and let Moses go, but rather carries him to the top of the mountain and shows him the promised land. And when we see that detail, when we remember that detail, it puts a little different spin on this story, I think. Now, I know that it is to the point of a platitude to say that being God's people doesn't mean that we don't encounter any unpleasantness in our lives. We all know that. If we didn't know that, every minor head cold would be a constant threat to faith. A, a hangnail might upend our spiritual lives. It, it's no secret that Christian faith guarantees us virtually nothing when it comes to the living of this life. God guarantees us almost nothing. Almost nothing. God guarantees us nothing but God. That is the promise of baptism. We have been so blessed this fall to celebrate a number of baptisms. I love it. But it is a promise to rely on even in those moments when I'm not taking the victory lap down the aisle with the newest baptized member of First Presbyterian Church and asking you to renew a promise that you have made to them, the promise that we will be with them, that we will reflect to them that God is always with us, and to remind them that God gave us each other to live this promise out. Now, as I was reflecting about that truth, I realized, you know, we really baptize infants and adults mostly here. But every once in a while, we get to baptize a child who is old enough to know what is going on. And I have to ask you, have you ever tried to explain baptism to a four-year-old? Now, we know theologically what it means. We can rattle off all the words. We know that baptism is a visible sign of God's invisible grace. We know that in the sacrament of baptism, it is a sacrament of inclusion, and so God grafts us onto the body of Christ. Uh, but being grafted onto the body of Christ is rather an esoteric concept for a four-year-old to understand. If I'm being perfectly honest, it's rather an esoteric concept for me to understand. So imagine trying to translate what it is to be grafted into the body of Christ to a four-year-old. I find that most of the teaching tools I've learned through the years fail me in that moment. So instead, when I have the privilege of explaining to a child what it is we're doing, I tell them that it means that God and we have promised that we will always be there for them. That is one of the central promises that make up Christian faith. That whatever challenges, whatever messes we find ourselves in, and we do find ourselves in messes from time to time, that we are all in this mess together, and God is in this mess with us. God is always with us. God guarantees us God. Sometimes God is with us in the promised land. And sometimes God is with us on the mountaintop looking off into an uncertain future. But God is always with us. It's Reformation Sunday, so I can't think of a better time to talk about Martin Luther. You know, it really was a terrifying thing to be an early reformer of the church, to take on all of the authority of the universal church and to say, you know, I just don't really think so. It requires a special kind of conviction to endure excommunication, just as it requires a special kind of conviction to row in the depths of a ship for two years. It takes a special kind of conviction to 
nail 95 complaints to a door and subsequently to go into hiding like Luther did. And it is hard. It is hard to wander in the wilderness, never sure if you will reach the promised land. So it's really no wonder that Luther suffered from bouts of melancholy really his whole life. And these bouts of melancholy would plunge him into a despair so deep that his friends would become terribly concerned for him. During one such, one such bout, his friends observed that he could be seen sitting at a table writing something over and over and over again, just writing the same word. And when he got up and went away, his friends walked over and read that he had written this single word, baptismo, over and over, reminding himself, I am baptized. And all that means is that God is with us and we are with one another as God is with us. When the Pope's emissary threatened him with excommunication, Luther rested as always in the promise of God's care. The emissary challenged Luther, and when you have been abandoned by the princes, and when you have been deserted by the people, where, Brother Martin, Will you be then? And Luther answered, Then, as now, in the hands of Almighty God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Our beliefs unite us with those who came before us and those who will come after. So come, let us be connected with our past, our future, and with one another by declaring together with one voice what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As a people of faith, we are not called to stay in one place forever, but to look out beyond our walls and into the promised future. We offer our gifts this day, remembering that the mantle has been passed to us and daring to have hope in the world that will come after us as well. Friends, with renewed commitment to what came before us and what will come after, we are being invited to bring what we have together. Our tithes and offerings will now be received.
and is and forever will be. Bless these gifts to the work of your kingdom on earth. We pray that our gratitude may be transformed into acts of hope, peace, and radical love where and when they are needed most. We pray in the name of your Son who leads us onward. Amen. We're invited again to join our hearts together in prayer. Let us pray. Holy and loving God, there are moments in our lives when we allow ourselves to see the larger picture, to zoom out from our present reality, and to feel profoundly grateful for the lives we are living. Help this to be one of those moments. Help this to be a sacred place of understanding and appreciation. Help us to look out from our own mountaintops to bear witness to the many generations of saints who came before us, and help us to look forward to the many generations of saints who will come after. We find ourselves here in this long processional of faithful people called to proclaim your love and offer your welcome. May we feel both empowered and humbled by our place in your intricate and enduring universe. We thank you this day for the places in our lives where we find hope, where we experience goodness. We thank you for those who love us, for those who show us that we matter. We thank you for the communities that give us a sense of belonging and a place to call home. We thank you for the people who are gifted in ways that we are not, and for those who remind us that we do not need to do everything ourselves. We thank you for warmth and fullness and rest that we are offered this day. And we thank you that you are a God who is big enough to hold our disappointments and heartbreak and soul-wrenching grief as well. God, you are not content to leave us on this mountaintop, but to send us out into the world to live and love alongside your people. You call us to go into classrooms and courtrooms, into coffee shops and voting booths, into border crossings and places of deep divide. We ask you for your strength, O oh God, that we may be your people in the world and that we may be recognized by our compassion and our forgiveness and our welcome. God, for the times where we do not know where we are going, when we are too afraid to face the next thing, we ask you to abide with us, O ever-present God. Guide us, especially when we are uncertain whether we are following your will. May our desire to follow you be pleasing to you. Remind us again and again that you will never leave us to face our perils alone. Remind us, O oh God, of your presence once more as we pray the prayer that your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.
I'm currently reading a book that has, among the other threads within it, one about quantum mechanics, which naturally makes me an expert in the field now. And I have learned that we understand things by reducing them down to their most basic level. And theologians do the exact same thing. We look at a passage of scripture and we try to make a claim, however stark it may be, that is irreducible. I believe that the guarantee that God is with us is just such an irreducible claim. So go in peace to live that truth. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.